Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. I'm Chris Jones, and I'm our church's outreach pastor, and I just want to say I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to share today's message with you, and let me just say this to our online community. Thank you so much for being a part of the Coastal family today. We'd hope that you would engage with us in the chat. Regardless of the platform you're watching on, we'd absolutely love to hear from you today. So we're continuing today with my absolute favorite sermon series, Summer Reading. But what's been kind of interesting is we've taken a little bit of a different turn than summer reading series in the past by exploring a sampling of what could be regarded as Christian classics. Now, we might argue that the reading is a little heavier, maybe a little more meatier than we're accustomed to, heavier on the theological aspects of our faith, reading that sometimes tends to take maybe a second or even sometimes a third pass before we actually turn the page. But what is notable about the books that we've explored over the past several weeks is that they have, in fact, withstood the test of time. And there is just something that's very inherent about them that, as we read them, causes us to pause and then evaluate our own walk with God, even though we may find them just a little bit tougher for us to read. Now, the author that we're going to be looking at today is a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. And he was born in 1897, and he was known as both a pastor, an author, and also a spiritual mentor. And he was from rural Pennsylvania. And as a young man, he was walking home from work one day, and he heard the words of a street preacher who was essentially crying out to absolutely anyone who would hear, if you don't know how to be saved, then call on God. And upon hearing those words, Tozer responded to that calling on his life by crawling into his attic at home and doing just that, thereby becoming a believer Tozer, at a very early age, he completed his very first work, the prayer of a minor prophet in his early 20s. And those who came to know Tozer would characterize his life by three things, by prayer, study, and the proclamation of God's word. And those who knew Tozer would say he would arrive at his office in the very early morning hours, and he would change out of his day-to-day slacks, because he didn't want them to get wrinkled, into some old pair of trousers, And then he would proceed to pray for up to three hours at a time. He would start on the couch, and after he would pray for a little while, he would then make his way down to the carpet, where ultimately he would conclude his prayers with his face buried in the carpet. Now, although his formal education ended at the sixth grade level, Tozer had this affinity for reading. He absolutely loved books, and he enjoyed a variety of different authors. He would read about the early church fathers, writers of the Middle Ages, philosophers, and he even read many of his contemporaries' books. And today you will find there are literally hundreds of thousands of quotes used both in books and in sermons that are pulled from Tozer's writing. In fact, you can get a really good glimpse of his heart and his passion for God In these quotes, listen to it. He's quoted as saying, you can see God from anywhere if your mind is set to love and obey him. He was also quoted as saying, we must never rest until everything inside of us worships God. And so the book that we're going to be exploring today, the springboard, if you will, for today's message is The Pursuit of God. And it is perhaps regarded as Tozer's most popular work. And interesting enough, 
It was completed on a single overnight train with Tozer being equipped with only a Bible, a pencil, and a notebook. And then the book he's quoted as writing this. Our pursuit of God is successful just because he is forever seeking to manifest himself in us. You see, Tozer is stressing that God is not far off in some distant locale or some out-of-touch out of place. But on the contrary, there is this proximity that exists with God, and he's constantly seeking communion with his children. You see, in the book, Tozer's lamenting the spiritual state of the nation at the time. In fact, the pursuit of God was written in the 40s, and he remarks about this lack of fervor and this lack of spirit existing in the American church. And interestingly enough, I bet Tozer wouldn't be too pleased with how he finds the state of the church today. So whereas it was, in fact, written quite some time ago, the pursuit of God is regarded by very many people as being a classic Christian writing. And whereas a few might suggest that some of the ideas contained in the book might be a little antiquated, so to speak, there is quite arguably, though, considerable relevance to the church today, as we're going to soon see in the message. So with that being said, and as we kind of get going with the message today, allow me to ask you a few questions, just for the sake of giving us something to think about, a primer of sorts. And the question is, it goes like this, are we as a church experiencing God in the manner in which he would have us to experience him? In other words, are you experiencing everything that God has to offer you? Maybe a more simpler way to ask that question would be like this. Are you experiencing Christ the way his death, resurrection, and gift of eternal life, are you experiencing him because of those things? Some might say right off the bat, well, yes. Perhaps some would say, I'm grateful for this gift of salvation. Others might say, I'm comforted by his love for us and the extravagance of his good grace. Most would likely to say, I'm just grateful to be known as a child of God. To know that at some point we will leave this place called earth to a place that we affectionately call glory where we'll have the opportunity to dwell with Jesus for all of eternity. And there very, very well may be people here in the room today and watching online who would say they've never experienced Christ but may actually be very open to hearing about him. So as we get into this message today, I think it's important to kind of establish a few very basic but foundational truths that will help us as we work our way through this message together. And the very first basic truth I want to share with you is this. God is always near. Friends, God is near us. He's not some distant or abstract idea or a God whose dwelling place is in this far-off, distant, cosmic locale. Nor is he out of sight or out of mind. And we're not on our own with him being this indifferent God and our trying to figure out this thing called life all by ourselves. He's not in some place where you and I, we don't have access to him. Rather, he is right here with us every single moment of every single day. In fact, the psalmist writes this in Psalms 145 and verse 18. It says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. You see, God's call for his people is not only found in the Old Testament, but we actually find this exact same calling in the New Testament. In fact, in James chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. Again, you see, the Lord wants to be with us. And he wants us to call on him morning and noon and night. And not just when we're going through the tough times either. But also draw near to him when things are actually going well. And in doing so, James writes, as we just discovered a few moments ago, he draws then near to us. The second very basic truth I want to share today is God is everywhere. You see, whereas you and I are limited to one particular place at a time, God is everywhere and at the same time. In fact, there is this $3 seminary word that pastors and seminarians like to throw around from time to time, and the word is omnipresent. Basically, what that word means is that you and I, we simply cannot hide from God. If we were to travel to the absolute darkest place of sin, and hopefully none of us are choosing to go there, the Lord would be there with us. I'll bet he'll be weeping. He'll be forever reaching out his hand, extending it to us, ready to guide you and I out of whatever and wherever we have allowed ourselves to drift to. God is everywhere. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalms 139, verses 7 through 10, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Coastal, he is with us when we are asleep, and God is with us when we are awake. And whether we be in a place of good or we find ourselves in a place of bad, we simply cannot hide from the goodness of God. In fact, even in the despair of sickness, God is there. In the pain of separation and broken relationships and divorce, God is there. He is with us in the strategy, in the tragedy, I should say, in the sting of death. And God is with us when we get promoted at work, and God is with us when we lose our jobs. You see, there is no circumstance, no situation, and no level of wrongdoing that's outside of the reach of God Almighty. God, in all his glory, friends, is indeed everywhere. And then the very third basic truth I want to share with you is God wants an intimate relationship with you. Make no mistake, God wants to save the unbelieving. You see, the Bible teaches us that God would desire that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. In fact, he sent his own son, Jesus, to simply die for the sins of the entire world. You see, our own wrongdoings and our poor decisions creates this gulf that separates us from him, a gulf that can only be bridged by accepting his son Jesus and his gift of eternal life. And all of heaven rejoices, as the Bible says, when just one sinner comes to repentance and receives Jesus' offer of salvation. But so often, believers make the mistake of thinking that salvation is somehow an endpoint. That once we receive the Lord and his gift of salvation, that somehow we are finished and that there is simply nothing left for us to do. Now make no mistake, let me make a very qualifying statement here. Christ is sufficient for salvation. And he indeed, he indeed paid for that salvation price in full. And friends, if the Lord did absolutely nothing else for us other than to save us, that would be more than we would ever need. But the Lord in all of his goodness wants to offer both you and I so much more than just salvation. 
You see, God loves us, and God loves us in a way that's full and complete, with a kind of love that simply has absolutely no limits. And not only that, the Lord longs for an intimate, lasting relationship with all of us. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 23 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The book of Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall never be removed, says the Lord. You see, the Lord wants us to know him beyond what we simply know of him in our minds, to progress spiritually from a place of knowledge to a place of experience. You see, it's one thing for us to know God, but to experience him is something altogether different. You see, Christ wants an intimate relationship, and he wants us to fully experience him, to feel his presence to have the kind of relationship where at the first sign of trouble, we instinctively call out on his name. And when we experience something good, the first thing that comes to our mind is Jesus Christ and his glorious hand over all of creation. The point I'm trying to make is simply this. So often, we miss and we settle for what we know about God and thereby forfeit what we can truly experience in him. So, if God is always near, and if he is everywhere, and he desires an intimate, relational, and daily experience with you, then we should all be experiencing it, right? After all, we've just explored and taken a quick walk, looked at some very basic truths. It is God's will for us to experience him every single day. Well, let me ask you another question. Would you describe your personal relationship with Jesus just like that? Listen to what Tozer offered in the book, The Pursuit of God. He says, it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. And if that were not ouch enough, he goes on to say this, the hungry sheep look up but they are not fed. All this to say, we hear God's truth, we receive God's truth, but somehow along the way, as believers, we've made the decision or we have chosen not to experience him. Because for so many, salvation has become an endpoint. when in reality, friends, it is only the beginning. Make no mistake, God is always near. God is omnipresence, and his salvation secures eternity for you. But God also longs for intimacy with you as well. And he wants an intimate relationship with us on this side of eternity. And he promises us that when we draw near to him, he in turn will draw near to us. And that no matter where we go in this life, he will always, always, always be there with us. The question for us is, do we truly, do we truly experience the Lord? Do we want to truly experience the Lord? Or are we good with the status quo of just simply knowing of him? Do we want more of Jesus to experience him more deeply and more intimately? 
to move from this place to where we know about him to a place to where we're experiencing him in our lives every single day? Do we want to be known as both men and women after God's own heart? Hopefully we'd say, of course we do, right? Or at least we should. So how then do we pursue God in a way that allows us, you and I, to fully experience him versus just knowing him? Well, this idea of pursuing God has three steps, so to speak. And the first step is this. If we're going to pursue God, we have to follow hard after him. There is this old saying that says, complacency kills. Perhaps you've heard it. Now, most people who know me know this about me, but I was a soldier for a very long time. And as a soldier, like many soldiers serving after a 9-11, I found myself thousands of miles away from home in this little place called Iraq. What a gem it was. Let me just say it was a miserable place, and I would not recommend it as a vacation destination. But in any case, when our units would roll out of what we affectionately called the wire, the wire being the outermost boundary of our forward operating base, there was this hand-painted sign at the exit gate that simply said, complacency kills. It was this not-so-gentle reminder that Iraq was indeed a place of danger. Danger in Iraq was literally everywhere. There was the threat of IEDs and an enemy that essentially looked just like everyone else. It meant being complacent could very well not only cost you your own life, but the life of your friends. So as an army medic, mitigating complacency meant preparation before we departed out on these missions. It meant doing things like checking our equipment, our weapons, and our medical gear to make sure we were prepared for the, for the potential troubles that may lie ahead. In essence, we were preparing for battle before the battle happened. And in the same way complacency can be a killer to the American soldier, it can also be a killer to the believer's pursuit of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 63, verses 1 through 4, it says, O God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and dreary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, and my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And just a little bit further down in verse 8, it says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You see, these are the words of King David. And he's chasing after God, and he's yearning, and he's longing for him. His soul is aching, and it's thirsting. And he writes that his very being, the essence of his being, clings to God. And he talks about how his soul sticks to the very heart of God like glue. You see, David recognized that although he was indeed a man after God's own heart, he had to avoid complacency and not simply assume that because he had a relationship with the Lord that somehow his pursuit of God was then over. You see, David recognized that the Lord was good and he was powerful and that he was glorious and he knew that God Almighty held his life in every circumstance he would ever face right in the palm of his hands. You see, David illustrates not only in this psalm that we just read, but in countless others, that this pursuit of God is an endeavor never to be taken lightly and should consume every single fiber of our being. So let me ask you, 
when was the last time you thought of God in this manner? Or has your walk with God become complacent? You see, friends, complacency kills, and it kills by quenching the fires of a vigorous and daily and lifelong pursuit of God who simply wants nothing more than to be found and to be loved by his people. And there's a great lesson to be learned here from David. You see, we've been invited, you and I, to fully experience God, to move beyond this place to where we just know of him to travel the greatest spiritual distance, that being from our head down to our heart. Yet this net of complacency casts both far and it casts wide. And it robs so many believers from experiencing what we just read about in the life of David. And let me just say this. It's a tragedy of epic proportions. But you know what's even worse than that? It's completely and totally avoidable. Listen to what Tozer had to say. He says, the simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found amongst us. In its stead are programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. Again, complacency kills. It kills simply because it forfeits what could be. Think about it. Busyness and overworking. Rush through devotional times, lives filled with noise, distractions too many to count, and this necessity to hurry on to the next best thing. Restlessness and this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Bogging us down and chaining us to the idea that knowing him instead of experiencing him is somehow good enough. So if we're going to be in pursuit of God, we have to follow after Follow after him hard, and then there's this. We have to embrace the blessing of possessing nothing. I think it goes without saying. You and I, we live in a world of pursuit. And may some of you or may, may or may not know this, but the reality is you and I, we were created for the pursuit. And the problem is not in the fact that we pursue. The problem comes in the object of that in which we pursue, And interestingly enough, it seems as if the the Lord's led me in nearly every message as of late to at least briefly mention as to what I'm going to talk about next. You see, our pursuit of experiencing God is so often sidelined by our pursuit of other things. Things that aren't necessarily bad in themselves, but they do have this tendency to consume both our time and our energy. And if we're not mindful of them, they have the potential to move up the ladder of priority in our lives. And before we know it, we have all of these things that have taken place of our pursuit of God. Things such as wealth. Having money not being the problem. It's the money that you don't have and long for. That's what becomes the problem. Or perhaps entertainment. Again, there's nothing wrong with having a good time. In fact, life should be enjoyed whenever possible. You see, the trouble comes when entertainment becomes this false sense of fulfillment, when one fleeting moment in time offers only to quickly dissipate like a vapor, leaving us chasing the next opportunity as a priority. Things like sex and comfort and perhaps a million other things that we could think about can simply get in the way taking the place so often of an intentional pursuit 
of God. And again, we forfeit a daily experience with the Lord over the fleeting pleasures of the material things. Tozer described in his book that in the human heart, things have taken over. Quite arguably, the gifts that we enjoy in this life, things that belong to him anyway, have become the sources of potential ruin to our very own souls. But listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 24. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's also uh, been quoted as saying in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me share a quick story with you. Several years ago, Kim and I, my wife, owned a home on John's Island. And at some point, we decided that the one thing that would make this blessing, this big, beautiful home, was a hot tub. Now, I'm not sure what they cost now, but at the time, they were about $8,000. And let me just tell you, we just had to have it. After all, we thought in our minds at the time, we were working hard, we were serving in the church, but we needed a place to unwind, to recharge, to rest, think and reset, an opportunity for us to refill. It was the answer at the time to our lack of happiness and our contentment. So what did we do? We bought it. And we paid for the professional installation. And we installed it just in the backyard, just off the back deck of our home. And my sweet wife, Kim, goes out there, takes one turn in it, comes in after about 10 minutes and says, she's freaked out. It's too dark out there. She's scared the boogeyman is going to come and get her. So what do we do? Well, we invest several hundred more dollars to have it uninstalled, then picked up, and then moved to the garage and have it reinstalled. So by now you think we've solved that problem. Kim and I had finally found what we were looking for, rest, relaxation, peace, and fulfillment in those lazy evenings and our $8,000 hot tub. Well, not exactly, because I'm here to tell you today that hot tub was used exactly twice the entire time we owned it. True story. And the only thing we got out of that decision was debt and water that we could never get right. I mean, there was never a soul in the tub, but it was a perpetual mess because we were always having problems with the chemicals. But seriously, everything that we hoped would come from our investment in that hot tub could have potentially cost us absolutely nothing. Why? Because Jesus had already paid for what we were seeking in full. The point I'm trying to make is simply this with you. Be smarter than me. Because let me just tell you today, stuff is just stuff. But Jesus Christ, he is everything. So friends, if we want to experience a life with the Lord fully, if we want to pursue him and move beyond this idea of just knowing him, then the energy we are sacrificing on the stuff, stuff that belongs to him anyway, has to be set aside. And we must give Christ back what things have taken over. And let me just say this, a true pursuit of God, to give back to the Lord what belongs to him anyway, is through a sacrifice of something that's precious to every single one of us, time. And let me also just say this, 
Friends, Jesus modeled a life of service. And if we want to get our minds on what really matters, we must invest both time and energy where it really counts. And right now in your bulletin, you will see a life team insert. And there is an opportunity for all of us right now, even those who are watching online, to pursue God through service. Two great examples, one that PC shared from the Sage Coastal Kids, the other is First Impressions. And most of these require an hour or less of your time. And if everyone would simply commit, a small commitment of just one service, one Sunday a month, it would make a huge difference here in the life of our church. But more importantly, you'd be just a little bit more like Jesus because you would be modeling exactly what he did for us. Friends, think of it this way. There's God's treasure, and then there's the other stuff. And the man and the woman who has God for his or her treasure has everything they will ever, ever need. So take a moment right now. Take a next step on that Connect card and join one of those life teams. So the pursuit of God requires we follow hard after him. And we must embrace the blessing of possessing nothing. And lastly, we must remove the veil of self. Friends, I want you to know if you've been a believer for seemingly a lifetime, or if you happen to be very brand new to your faith, or even if you're hearing about Jesus and this whole God thing for the very first time, I want you to know that there is a total and absolute freedom, a kind of freedom that can only be found in Jesus. The Bible teaches us that whomever the Son sets free is free indeed. It also teaches us that the moment you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this freedom, friends, that comes through salvation can never, ever be taken from you. Even the devil himself, as powerful as a foe as he is, he cannot take it away from you. But what he can do and does so often is he places this subtle veil of self over our eyes in which we ourselves freely surrender our freedom to the enemy. And this veil creates a love of self that grinds to a screeching halt any and all pursuit of God. Isaiah chapter 64 verses 6 through 7 says, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. You see, our self-imposed identities, friends, might be one of the biggest idols that is worshipped in the church today. And so many people have fallen trapped and largely abandoned who they are in Christ and instead have placed their identity in these other things. Things like social media followings, positions at work, abilities, skills, and achievements. All good things in themselves, but so many have wrapped their identities up in those things instead of Jesus. And let me say, and no matter how much we fight, no matter how much we claw for these other identities, they will ultimately leaving us wanting and so short of what could be in our lives. Why? Because if your identity is in your work or in your skills or your looks or anything else, you will always feel like you don't measure up. I can't help but wonder if someone feels that today. And as Tozer would say, these alternative replacement identities are nothing more than harsh taskmasters. But when our 
identity, though, is secured in Christ with our true identity. We have the opportunity as a church and as individuals to live in total freedom. And while we will always fall short on this side of eternity, God's love and our identity in him will never, ever fail us. So friends, let us wrap this all up and tie it all together in a package you can take home by allowing me to ask you one more time, all the way back to the very beginning of the message, a question. And that is, are we as a church experiencing God in the manner in which we would, we, he would have us to experience him? Because if God is always near, and if God is everywhere, and if God wants an intimate relationship with you, then what then is hindering us from pursuing God? Pursuing him in a way that results in experiencing life with him completely and fully. At what point do we acknowledge the pursuit of experiencing God is so often sidelined by our pursuit of things? What's keeping us from asking Christ to simply take back what things have taken over? Friends, if you are a believer, your identity by God's design is to be in nothing other than Jesus Christ. And trust me when I say this, friends, Jesus has been and Jesus is, and Jesus always will be more than enough. And if we pursue him, we will find him. So friends, if you're making the decision today for Jesus, or even if you've known him for years, I want you to be reminded of this thing in closing, and that is Jesus loves you. And the Bible teaches us that God is love. The Bible also teaches us that let all that we do be done in love. And what better way then to respond to this message? What better way to express our love for him than by making the choice today to actively pursue him every day? Making him a priority and move to this place where we have the joy of experiencing him intimately every single day. It sounds incredibly sweet, right? So let's take a quick moment and let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us all to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us today and just reminding us, Lord, that, oh, Father, that you want an intimate relationship with us, that you're always near, and that you are everywhere. And that, Lord, it's your desire for each and every one of us, whether we be, have walked in faith for many years or we're brand new to the faith, or even, Lord, if we're hearing this message of salvation for the very first time, Lord, we pray that we would heed this invitation to come and know you intimately, to move from this place, Lord, to where we simply know about you, to this place to where we experience you every single day in our lives. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would see that things have this tendency to take over, that these self-imposed identities have this way of getting in the way of this pursuit of you. And that complacency absolutely crushes and kills any pursuit of an intimate relationship with you. So Father, Lord, we pray today as a church and in agreement, Lord, that you, Father, Lord, would help us, Lord, to have eyes that would allow us to see and to be, Lord, all that you created us to be. And may each of us experience you in a brand new way. That you would do something brand new in each and every one of us. 
And Lord, we pray for those who are watching online or those in the room who have not accepted your gift of eternal life. Perhaps this message resonated with you. Perhaps you are ready to make a decision to receive Christ. Just pray a prayer, something like this. Father, I've tried my own way. I've done things on my own accord. And I've discovered it. It's not working out. Father, I receive, Lord. I receive your gift of salvation. I thank you, Lord, for the work that was done on the cross and how you lived a sinless life that I might have eternal life with you. Father, I invite your spirit to dwell in me, not just today, but all the days of my life and change me, Lord, from the inside out that I might give you glory from this point on. And Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we do it all in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.